Heavenly Father, we are grateful again that uh, we don't have to make this stuff up on our own. You, you haven't left us to kind of figure this out, but you've given us your, your book, the Bible, the scriptures, your inspired and errant authoritative word. And as we read, we hear your voice. As we gather together, your spirit meets us corporately in the reading of your word and you by your grace fill us and teach us and instruct us and correct us and we pray indeed that's what you would do this morning pray that you would use this time that you would work against anything that would prevent us from hearing your word or responding to it and that we would indeed leave having come in contact with you even as we've come in contact with your word and each other that this time would be a time that you accomplish your will and your work in our lives. So bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. A few weeks ago, my wife and I had a chance to speak to a Campus Crusade crew, a fall getaway uh, over the course of a weekend and had just a rich time there. This was one of the passages that I, I taught from. And I just, I, it was one of those as I looked at it again and as, as I've been thinking about it, it just continues to kind of sink its roots into my own heart and my own life. And I thought this morning would just be a great passage to, to look at. It really addresses, if I can give you just a little bit of foretaste, it's, it's, it really addresses what life is like here. It gives us a taste, a picture of life during our days, what it, what it means to live during these days. And so Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 20. Seven. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In hope that this creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope, For what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And together, the grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. So this passage, as Paul describes that really the Christian's life, he uses interesting terms, really vivid terms to describe what our life is like. And it's like a journey. It's a journey that has lots of challenges and difficulties. In fact, he uses this word groaning to describe the journey that we're on. Now, I happen to love stories about journeys. 
I love to read about them. And of course, the question in those stories and when you're on a journey, when you're, when you're, when you're reading or watching the show or the movie about it, the question is always, the tension of the plot line, right, is, will they make it home? When the hobbits leave the Shire about chapter, or verse, or uh, page 50 of the Lord of the Rings, it's about 950 before they return. And everything in between is awaiting and wondering, will they return to the Shire, there's a, a tension in the storyline. Will they make it home? Will they make it back? The storyline of Scripture, the drama, is the same type of story. When man is cast out of the, of the out of the garden early on because of his sin, the rest of the Bible is about the redemption. And the question that remains as it relates to mankind is, will he make it back? How will he make it back? What will it take for him to return to home? Will he indeed make it home? There's a tension in the journey. Many challenges, many barriers, many conflicts in that process and in that journey. And our lives are described like that by Paul in this section that we're looking at this morning. A number of years ago, in fact, when my daughter, our youngest, was about two she had difficulty when we were away from home, and we traveled a lot when we were with, with Campus Crusade and our crew, when we were on staff then. And we traveled, and when we were apart, when we were away from home, she was restless. And so when we're trying to put her to bed or to help her to sleep, she would just fight. Everything in her was like, I don't like this. She would take her blanket, and she would hold it up to her face, and she would, she would smell it. And she was trying to get everything that she could that would remind her of home and we would hold her. But she was at times inconsolable because she wasn't home. And everything about her surroundings reminded her of that truth. And and I think as Christians, there's many times in our lives that, that that's reflective. That describes our lives. We look around as good as it is. We go, but it's not home. And we look for things to try to remind us of home. In this passage, as Paul writes, he says, no, we're not home. But I want to encourage you in the process of the life that you're living now, of the the challenges in which you, you live now, and this vivid imagery of the groaning aspect of life. I want to give you a description, an accurate description of what we can expect in this life. Because God, in one respect, he sets for us, that against us, our satisfaction. He, he reminds us that, that we have a home that's beyond this place. And he prevents us from finding satisfaction here and now. And his markers and his efforts are everywhere in our lives. And as Paul writes this particular passage in, in Romans, he wants his readers to know this. This is what life can be understood by in these few verses, 18 through 27. Earlier on in chapter 8, we see that he describes the role of the Holy Spirit in the process of applying God's salvation. He describes in that period, in that section, the finished work of Christ in light of what the Spirit does. And he talks about how the Spirit comes and he, he, he helps apply that not guilty pardon towards us. And he calls us. He says, you are not guilty. And the Spirit comes by His work and His effort in our lives. And then He says, you are alive not in the flesh, but in the, in the Spirit, and we're made alive in Christ. In verses 8 through 
13. And then verses 14 through 17, we see this picture. The Spirit's work is that He assures us of our adoption. That He comes and He he puts this word, these words in our mouths, Abba, Father. He enables us to be identified, to identify ourselves as God's children. That God has adopted us as sons and daughters of God. That our position, our place as His children is now no longer slaves, but sons and daughters of God. And that is certain, that is sure, that is firm and is true, just as God is unchangeable. And so He says, these are fixed things. These are already true. These will not change. But then he comes to this, this section of our life, the, the present time, the present time in which we live. In verse 18, he says, I, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing to the glory that will be revealed. And he identifies this season, this era in which we live as the, the present time, these days in which we're in between the finished work of Christ and the fulfillment of all that he came to do, that we live in this middle ground. This present time, sometimes it's called the the end times. And we're waiting. We're in that middle ground waiting for the king to return and to finish his work. And we're in that middle ground, Paul says. And it describes your life. And we're anticipating what will happen. We're in between the finished work of Christ and the finalization of that. And so 1 through 17 can be described as the already. It's what God has done. And then 18 through 27 is the not yet. We're living in that middle ground of that. This age is marked by these, this characteristic that Paul gives us. But most of all, this age in which we live is marked by the presence of God's Spirit in His people. That, that God comes and He dwells in His people during this period of time to enable us to make it through and on our journey, through the difficulties that we face. The early part of this, you see this, the early two themes that Paul mentioned, suffering and glory. That the sufferings of this present time are not worth the glory that's to be revealed in the next age. And so this era that we live in is marked by that term, a description, suffering. But it's suffering with a taste of glory. Taste here and there of the goodness of God, but not the completion. But the next age is marked by glory. When the king returns, when he ushers in completely his kingdom, it's marked by glory, and that glory is enhanced only by the suffering that we experience now. And so they're related in that way. Paul goes on to describe, and one of the themes I want to emphasize this morning, the one that we're going we're gonna to work through in this vivid kind of way, is the groaning that takes place. I don't know if you caught it when we read through the section But groaning is mentioned three different times. Three different subjects are involved in that process. We see that that groaning is that wordless kind of expression when life isn't the way that it's supposed to be. When we're in a place where we're not supposed to, when we're not made to be in, it's a longing for home. And these three subjects, we see that the, the, the creation groans. We see that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown. But then we have this mysterious introduction. The Holy Spirit is also involved in the process 
of interceding with groans on our behalf. And so what we're going to do this morning is, is look at that and ask the question, what is it that we can learn? As we think about the, the, the experience of our life, the journey that we're on, the difficulties that we face, the array of experiences that we have, the different tastes of glory and goodness that is along with, with suffering, what is it that, that can enable us, that can sustain us throughout the groaning, the wordless ache, the restless rest, which is a built-in longing for home? And so as we talk about this, as we look at this, we want to, we believe that God has hardwired this into us. So we're going to look at creation, we look at us, we look at the spirits involved in that process. And as we do that, I believe it'll help us to live in the here and now, to properly understand the days in which we live, and to, and to tether ourselves to the past work of Christ, what Christ has done for us, and to reach forward to the certain hope of the glory that He who began that work, will finish it and complete us and bring us home. So first of all, we see that creation groans in verses 19 through 22. For creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. What does Paul do here? He personifies creation, right? He puts words and experiences into the, the reality of creation. That it, He personifies, it's like a person. And, and we see that it's, it's, it experiences futility, that it waits in the eager expectation. And then we see that, that creation even groans, right? That, that, that somehow what's going on in creation, it's, it's waiting for something. It wants something that he personifies. And, and again, that shouldn't be unusual to us. You read through the Psalms, you read through the prophets, you see many times words are put and actions are put into creation. It's personified. That the creation, right, claps its hands. The, the rivers clap their hands. The, the hills sing for joy in this praise. You might remember in the triumphal entry at the end in Luke's version of it, in his gospel, he's, we see this picture where the, the Pharisees tell Jesus, tell, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop praising, to uttering these blasphemies. And what's Jesus say? He says, I tell you that even the rocks, the stones are going to cry out. If man doesn't take his rightful place in the choir and singing, what's going to happen? The, the, the chorus will be, the, the creation will jump in. And so we see that it's personified in this picture here. And, and, but here it groans. It says it's waiting for the revelation of the, of the children of God in, a, in an incredible way, a beautiful way that, that creation is connected with us. And what's it anticipating? It's looking forward to the restoration, the revealing of God's sons and daughters. Creation waits anticipates that day because as mankind, as, as God's children are revealed, so it will be reestablished. So it will be restored. So it will be renewed in the way that it was designed for. It experiences itself this kind of futility, this kind of frustration, which is the same word that's used in the book of Ecclesiastes some 37 times. Vanity, emptiness, frustration, futility, you get the sense of it. You feel it. And that's, that, that's, that's what we see in creation. That it's, it's subject 
to an endless cycle, right? That you see it, that there's life and there's decay and there's death and there's decomposition. That that, that process of, of the world, the creation around us is set to that. It's a, it's a result of the fall. The Genesis chapter 3 gives us the picture of because of the sin kind of mankind, the sin of mankind, that what we have there is that man was cursed. But more than just man being cursed, we see that the earth was cursed, that the creation was cursed, that the, that the vegetation and the land was, as well as the livestock. So all of creation experiences that frustration, that cycle. It's not the way that it's supposed to be, not what it was designed for. But there's a kind of beauty even in this futility, right? There's a kind of beauty in this, this process, this cycle. My wife and I had a chance this couple few weeks ago to go to Colorado at the end of the, the turning of the Aspen. If you've ever seen those, they're beautiful, the colors. And we saw the very end. And so we saw some of the, the richest colors and golds and we saw the, the reds. But at the same time, we saw a lot of trees without leaves. And it was a reminder that in that process of life and decay and death, that the, that the beauty of it was a result that, that as you saw the colors, it was an imminent display of death, that death was coming. And so we see that that's the reality, that creation groans. It, it longs for more. It's waiting, anticipating this restoration of the children of God. The creation is bound up with the human condition. And thus John, John Calvin writes this, thus the condemnation of mankind is imprinted on the heavens and the earth and all of creation. That the condemnation of mankind is imprinted on all of creation. That it experiences the condemnation, the judgment, the fall as a result of mankind and our sin. And to go on, you ask the question, in what way does it not fulfill? In what way is it frustrated? Another commentator wrote this. I think this was helpful in explaining. And if the question is asked, what sense can there be in saying that the subhuman creation, Mount Everest, for example, or the Matterhorn or planet Venus, suffers frustration by being prevented from properly fulfilling the purpose of his existence? In what way is it frustrated? The answer must surely be that the whole magnificent theater of the universe, together with all its splendid properties and all the very chorus of subhuman life created for, God, for God's glory, is cheated it's cheated to display God's glory. Of it. It's cheated of its true fulfillment so long as man, the chief actor in the great drama of God's praise, fails to contribute his rational part. See, we've gotten the way. We do not offer the praise that God deserves. We didn't in the beginning and we still don't. And until that is solved, creation stands frustrated. And that's what it longs for. It's weighed, it's groaning for this restoration. But then Paul goes on and says, creation groans in verse 23 says, but not just creation, we do. As we're on this journey from, from home back to home, right? We long, we groan. He says, verse 23, not only creation, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He says that we groan, that we long. And his point is this. If creation does, so ought we. If creation longs for that, so do we long for that, the restoration for us to find ultimately the place for which we were made to be there. 
And Paul uses this image as he's describing who it is. For we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. And, and it's just a beautiful picture referring back, of course, to some of one of the Hebrew rituals, the festivals they had. That was the festival of weeks or the, the one, the, where they would, the end gathering. And they would bring the first fruits. Israel would. It was a, a part of that. And the first fruits would be brought in of the harvest that they had. And the first fruits were, were first a, a gratitude, right? As an offering. Saying, God, this comes from you. You are the one that provides for us. And we're grateful. But it was also a reminder that the harvest wasn't finished yet. It was in hope of the fulfillment of what God had promised. And the first fruits of the Spirit is this imagery, this picture of what we have as a taste, as a down payment of the fulfillment of the completion of what God will bring about. And it's a reminder that it's not finished yet, that we're not completed yet, that the, that the, the Spirit's presence in us is a taste. It's a, it's a present taste of God's future presence that will be fulfilled and will be completed. It's a promise saying, I will complete what I've started. It's his Holy Spirit continuing to dwell us. It's the power of the age to come residing in us. And it enables us to anticipate, to wait, and to long, and to groan appropriately as we look to that. So we groan inwardly, the author says. We groan waiting on the inside here. That the, pres- the Spirit's presence is a reminder of our incompleteness. That the Spirit's presence is a reminder of our incompleteness. It's a reminder of our not yetness, right? We're not there yet. And so the first fruits remind us of that, that we are not home and our groaning and our longing is a part of that process. It's similar to a wedding ring. Think about this. It's a symbol, right, of my marriage to Kelly. It's a symbol, certainly, of the hope of our marriage or relationship and fidelity and all those kinds of things. But when we're apart, it's a reminder of her but it's also a reminder that we are not together, that we're not complete. And so the Spirit's presence in us reminds us that we're not finished, that we're not complete, that we're not home in that respect. And so Paul goes on to describe this. There's a, there's a frustration, this groaning picture, this wordless ache that's there. We wait, we anticipate this. But our lives, the, the span of lives we're here, right? They're, they're filled with frustration and futility, with loneliness, with disappointment, with dissatisfaction. And what we're told here is that the Spirit of God enables this process so that we'll remember what our true home is. It will enable us not to be confused by what we find here in this groaning. And it points us in the right direction. It reminds us that we are not home. But as we look inside and we see those things, we re- also realize that there is a home to be had. C.S. Lewis captures this very well in Mere Christianity, this, this imagery, this picture. And he says that basically in our lives, when we find dissatisfaction, there's three different approaches to it. When we find that we're disillusioned with the world around us, there's three approaches. He says the first one might be we, we mistake the thing for the happiness, Right. And we say the thing itself is the way that we're going to find it. So we change the thing, right? We, instead of the iPhone 6 or 7, we need the 8 or maybe the, the 10 to make us happy. Maybe we need something, a bigger house. What do you fill in the blank? And he says, that's one way. The second way is the man who has come to his conclusion that he's disillusioned and, and the universe is a fraud. He lives dissatisfied and that's all he can expect. 
But Lewis goes on in, in Mere Christianity in this chapter on hope to describe the third way, and that's the Christian's way. The Christian way, he says, he writes, Christ, uh, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger whether there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim whether there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire for there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be thankful for these earthly blessings and on the other, never to mistake them for the for the for something else of which they are only a, a kind or a copy or an echo or a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it my main object in my life to press on to that other country and to, and to help others to do the same. He describes groaning in a different kind of way. It's function. What it produces is a longing for home. It describes in these ways, right? A birth pangs, right? It's not just difficult. It's not just painful. It's, it's painful that has a kind of productive outcome to it. And so we wait, he says. We wait for this, this longing, this looking for home, wondering, wondering about home. And he says, what are we waiting for? We, we wait with eager anticipation. And that picture... That picture is to be on, on tiptoes, right? To, to be looking forward, to be able to stand and look so you can see we, with eager anticipation. What are we waiting for? He goes on to say our adoption and our redemption of our bodies. The adoption and, our, and the redemption of our bodies. So our adoption completed. And the question, of course, we ask is this. Isn't our adoption finalized? Isn't it completed? We've already talked about that in 14 through 17. Didn't the judge already sign the papers? Isn't that finished? And the answer is yes, but it's not completed yet. It's not completely fulfilled yet. It is certain, and yet we wait. Then he goes on to talk about we wait for, we groan longing for the redemption of our bodies. Now, when I was 20, if I would have read this, I wouldn't have known exactly what he was talking about. My 20-year-old self had a, has a different, my 50-year-old self has a different reading of this, this passage uh, now than it, than it uh, did then. The redemption of our bodies, the longing that our temporary dwelling will be remade. The hurt and the pain that's there, that's present in our lives. The promise is that they will be completed. We will have a glorified body. As we live in the interim now, as we go on this journey, there's difficulties and many of us face them in our bodies, right? Our bodies and our minds, our personalities, our emotions. Many live with chronic pain. And it's a reminder that we're not home. Many live with, with difficulties mentally and emotionally. And that's a reminder that we are not home. Many are subject and all of us subject to addictions and to things that control us. And they remind us as we fight against them, as we wage war against those things that would control us. We're reminded that we are not home. 
We wrestle with our identities. We wrestle with this ongoing satisfaction of ourselves, our own bodies, our own abilities, our own intellect. And all those things remind us that we are not home. And we groan and we long for everything to be restored. Our bodies to be given in a glorious way. Our minds to be renewed. To not have to struggle with those things anymore indeed will be what we, is what we anticipate and we long for. The penalty of sin has been broken. The, the power of sin, or the penalty was paid, the power has been broken, but the presence is still in us. And we fight, and it's a war that we continue to wage. And all this causes us to groan and long for our completion. John Stott has these words for us. An exhortation, he said, the Christian should grin less and groan more. That means we step into, we're invited to see those ways in which we are come to understand that we are not in the world in which we were made and to step into those moments, to see the productiveness that God uses those in our lives to remind us that this isn't home. As we look at our desires and we glow, go below the surface, we see our longings are ultimately for God. And he puts his hand against anything that we will seek to find to satisfy us, to prevent it from giving us what only he can give. And so, so that spirit churns us up, these desires in us, in our lives. And so we groan, and that's what it looks like for us. But then Paul goes on to describe the spirit's involvement in this process in verse 26. He says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we ought to pray or to, what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You see, we live in this interim time between the already work, finished work of Christ and the future glory that is that we are waiting for, the completion of those of God's story of redemption. This time is fragile and futile and we feel and we recognize the fallenness of our nature and the world around us. But Paul goes on to say, in light of that groaning, what God does, he steps in and he provides for us our need. He meets our need through his Holy Spirit. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, he says. As we think about this setting, what it means to groan along, he helps us in our weakness. Now, note this. He helps us in our weakness. He doesn't do what we wish he would do. We, sh- we wish he would remove our weaknesses from us, but he doesn't. He steps into the challenges of our life, into the weakness that we find there, and he is present in us. And he helps us. He comes alongside us. He bears it as if it were his, and he joins us in that load. He joins us in that. He comes alongside us to give us strength. Now, this is interesting, right? He helps us in our weakness. Then he goes on to describe what that weakness is. Now, if I was to ask you a question, say, what weakness would you like the Holy Spirit to help you with? And I said, fill in that blank. Well, if I filled in that blank, it'd probably be 10 or 15 steps below before I would get to where Paul is. There's many other things that I would fill in in my weaknesses. But Paul says this, right? That our core, essential, practical weakness of our lives is that we don't know how to pray. That we don't pray as we ought. That it's, it's in our inability to pray. It's in our inability to go to the Father. It's, it's our inability to, to get a hold of the power that he offers to us. And so the Spirit comes. He meets us. 
and he helps us to pray. We don't know how to pray as we, as we ought. And you know this, right? But, but sometimes we don't even want to pray. That there's just pure reluctance there. I don't want to pray. For whatever reason, there are things that prevent us in our own hearts and our minds that we don't even want to go to pray. And the Spirit steps in and enables us, even in our reluctance, to, to, to lead us in that. John Bunyan writes this. He writes, I find that my heart is slow to go to God. And when it does go to him, it does not seem to want to stay with him. So that very often I am forced in my prayers, first to beg of God that he would take my heart and set it on him. And then, and then when it is there, that he would keep it there. Have you felt like that? You just have to take my heart and even drag it into the presence of the Lord. And then to keep it there so we don't even want to pray. But, but secondly, sometimes the complexities of our days and our lives and our situations are such that we don't even know what to pray. We don't even know how to pray, what to pray. What, what, what words do we have? And the Spirit comes there. He meets us in those times where we don't know what to pray. And He, he joins us. He intercedes for us to pray on our behalf. But then those times where we don't know, do we pray for deliverance from a situation or do we pray for strength to stay in a situation? Right? That seems to be always there. Do I pray to get out of it? Or do I pray to stay in it? And of course, you know, the answer is yes. <laughs> we, we, we pray. And the spirit comes even there where we don't know the answer. We don't know what the exact right outcome is or what the Spirit wants according to God's will. But He comes and intercedes for us and enables us to pray. He intercedes, the, Paul goes on here, with groans too deep for words. With groanings too deep for words. He comes and He joins us. He intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray or even when we don't want to pray. Take a minute just to, just to think about that reality that God has said, I know you have access to the throne room, but you don't want to go. And even when you go, you don't even know what kind of questions to ask or what things to ask for. I'm going to give you my spirit to actually help you in that process. To come with, with groans, with wordless expressions of what you need. He comes and joins us. And what does he do? He picks up our prayers. He picks up our needs our experiences, and he carries them as if they were his to the Father. That's what it means that he intercedes for us. He fills our prayers with new content that is according to God's will. Does that mean we don't have to pray? Absolutely not. It's a great incentive, however, to pray. To realize that he joins us in our prayers. And especially when we don't know how to pray, especially when we don't even know what to say. He joins us and he takes our prayers. He fills them with content that is according to God's will. He enters into our weakness and he enables us to pray according to the, the, word, the will of God. Now, the question in this, in this passage, if you like these kinds of things, that commentators, all of them will, will, will address this issue. And the question is, who is groaning here? It says that he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And the question is, is the spirit groaning or are we groaning? Now, I worked hard this week to try to have an answer to that question. and I couldn't find one. I read eight or so commentaries looking for the, the answer to the question, who's 
groaning and I couldn't find the exact answer. I like clarity. I'd love to be able to say this is exactly what, what it says. But you know, when, when we find that, when we find a little bit of unsurety in terms of what's being said, I think it leads us to, to think a little bit differently, to realize I believe what's going on here, what's being expressed is something that's beyond maybe what we can get our hands around. Maybe it's just a little bit beyond what we can get or can be put into words that what Paul is saying, that in the Spirit's union with us in our prayers, as he meets us, as he joins us, even in our difficulties and our challenges, that the union is so close that it really can't be distinguished. That, that as he joins us and he meets with us, you can't separate the two. That the groanings that are ours are his. And he meets us and he fills our prayers with his content there. That he comes, that that union with Christ, that he comes and he's so close to us, they can't be expressed. Yes, the groanings are authored by the Spirit. Yes, they're, they're brought by him. But it's as a result of the union that we have with him, the closeness that we have with him. It can't be separated. And Paul says, can't even separate these two. The groaning that's going on, yes, it's the Spirit. Yes, it's us. That he fills our prayers with his content. I don't know if this doesn't energize or mobilize our praying. I don't know what will. And you might ask the question, do we engage our minds? Of course. Do we pray according to the revealed will of God? Of course we do. Do we pray according to scripture? Absolutely. Do we pray by the pattern of the, the, the prayer that, that Jesus gave us? Yes. He's given us lots of graces in our prayers. But I think what this means, as important as those are, we still need help. We still need him to enter into our prayers. We are still unable in and of ourselves to pray. And so he comes and he joins us and he fills our prayers with his will. He fills them with his content. And so we see this incredible picture, this identification of the spirit of God with us. Now, he doesn't groan in the same way that we do in the in between the spirit of God. But he he comes and he takes and he identifies with us the longing that we have and he strengthens us in this journey in the place that we're in. He takes the groaning that we have and he turns it into hopeful expectation instead of despair. You and I know well how these difficulties of life can lead us to despair and to wonder, is there an end? Will there be an end? Is there a hopeful outcome? Is there glory that we can anticipate and expect and the Spirit will come alongside us and strengthen us and enable us to sustain us, to endure and to walk and to look forward to that hopeful outcome of glory. And so we have two intercessors here. We have Jesus, who's an intercessor in the court of heaven. And we have the Holy Spirit that he identifies so closely with us. Both of them have done that to meet our need. The Spirit comes and helps us pray. So creation groans. It's waiting for the revelation of the sons and, and daughters of God. For that restoration. But until mankind comes in line, until the completion of our adoption, our redemption, that won't happen. And so in the middle ground in these worlds, the, the days in which we live, we, we wait and we long and we groan. And we allow those difficulties, that dissatisfaction, disillusionment in our lives to, to push us back, to drive us back towards God and say, yes, that's what I'm made for. To lift our eyes to be able to see what we're supposed to see. And then the Spirit comes alongside and within us and intercedes for us. 
and takes our prayers and makes them his and strengthen us in the exact way that we need as he fills our prayers with what he desires. So no matter the state of your inner life right now, there's an invitation for us to enter into the groaning of our lives, the, the restless rest, the things that are hardwired into our lives and invite God into our loneliness, into our disappointment, into our disillusionment. All those things that remind us that we're not home, invite him there. As well, invite him into your happiness, into your pleasure, into your joy. Because guess what? Those things are temporal as well. Invite him there because those remind us also that we are not home. But there will be a day that, the, that he will finish his work. That he will come. That, that we will be ushered into, if you will, glory into the world and the place that we were designed to be. Allow us to, to lift our eyes to, from the temporal to see the eternal, to the final rest that he has for us, that God will sustain us in the midst of this time. Conclude with an illustration for you. And I know you can't see this, but I can't put it on the screens, but I'll put it. This is an illustration of a bear. This bear is on the moon. So you can look, you can get the idea. So this, this bear is called Space Bear. It was an illustration that was done by my son a number of years ago. And, and you might think it's silly. I'm going to tell you why it's not. Because this is on my desk. Space Bear is, is on my desk. And I look at it quite often. If you looked at Space Bear, you would see that his eyes are not looking around. They're looking up. That, that Space Bear is longing to go home. And, and, and there's certain days, right, in your life. And I look, at, I look at this illustration and I go, yes, that's me. I am like a bear on the moon. And I'm longing for home. And so it allows me, it allows us to move our eyes from the temporal, to look up and say, yes, there is a home. And God, by his grace... By his spirit, even in through our, our groanings and our longings, that he will use his tools in our lives as birth pangs, will remind us that there is a home to be found and that he will bring us there. Let's pray. Father, thanks uh, that you tell us about the days in which we live. The difficulties that are there, we'd love to dis- explain away, and yet you say there's a purpose for them. Father, would you use for each one of our lives in each of the circumstances that we find ourselves, would you use where we find ourselves the way to be able to detect the the, the groaning and to allow it to lead us to you, that you would use that to help us understand the world for which we were made to live here and now in gratefulness, but to look to you. Would you, by your spirit, would you strengthen us, help us to pray, to go to the Father in the midst of our difficulties, no matter what they might be. Father, many circumstances within our, our, our church. And, and I pray specifically for Brad Kaler and his family. I pray for healing for him and his body and just for your grace there, the, the, the bleeding on his brain, that that would have stopped and it would, it would heal and his speech would be returned and you would, just, you would be with his family and bring peace to them. And Father, we pray for Chris and Chris Bryan as well as a few days here before, and then return for more training and then we'll be deployed. I pray that these days here for them would just be rich and rewarding and that you would keep him safe as you send him out. 
And Father, we, we pray for just that you would heal our, our broken nation, that you, you, you would be at work in it and through it, and you would use us as your tools and your vessels in that process. So we pray for that as well. Enable us, Father, we, we ask today to live lives full of faith, honoring you, that we as, your, uh, as the choir would offer you the praise that you deserve in and out of our days. Enable us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray.